Well, greetings, my friends. I hope that your 2024 has started off well. My next guest is a truth-seeking software engineer and data architect named Jose Maria Barrera. Today we'll be talking about his new book, Dendera, Temple of Time. Standing 40 miles north of Luxor, Dendera is the best-preserved temple complex in Egypt. Its most famous feature is its ceiling, which is called the Zodiac of Dendera. The ceiling, which rivals the Sistine Chapel in terms of intricacy, describes Egyptian astrology in remarkable detail. Jose took over 5,000 photographs of the Zodiac of Dendera and built software that stitched these images together in one seamless whole for us, the readers, to appreciate. Dendera Temple of Time is a beautiful work that works well as a coffee table or gift book, but is also full of intellectual substance with fascinating insights into the Egyptian gods, goddesses, and various spiritual beings that populated Egypt's temporal universe. And sometimes I do an interview and just feel an immediate and natural rapport with my guest. This was such a time. It was a pleasure to talk with Jose about his book, and I'm eager to share it with all of you. And so, with no further ado, Here's my conversation with Jose Maria Barrera about Dendera, the Temple of Time. So, Jose, thank you very much for taking the time today. I really appreciate it. I will be talking about your book, Dendera. And if we could start, could you just tell people what Dendera is? Yeah, so Dendera is actually a name of a town, an ancient town in Egypt. And there used to be a complex of temples, very important in ancient Egypt there. So... Uh, today is known by by the temple and it's the most important thing there the temple of Hathor at Dendera and it was a complex of different uh, structures uh, and and they had like a a temple that was the temple of Hathor which is the most important structure that is still there and during the time they built like around or or facilities so it was like a wellness spa at some point and and uh, we can talk about the, the the place itself, but the goddess Hathor is the goddess of birth and music, and among other things. And so a lot of healing happened in this temple, basically. So they, they had a sacred pool, and a bunch of infrastructure, right? And it was like a place of pilgrimage for people. Uh, although in temples, they're different than our modern temples where people go there and enter to, to pray in the temples. Uh, at the time of Egypt, the temples were reserved for high priests and the pharaoh. So not everyone had access to, to the inner parts of the temple, but they could go and, and worship the, the gods and the goddesses, the deities of the temple at any time, but they, they were not able to access like in, in, in the temple. So that's what Nendera is, basically. And today, uh, what is amazing and beautiful about it is that the Temple of Hathor there today is probably the best well-preserved uh, structure in ancient Egypt, in, in Egypt, basically, from ancient, from ancient Egypt. So it's fascinating because you go there and it's a building that, in contrast to other places, like you go, for example, to Luxor and you go to the Temple of Karnak and it's imposing, is the largest religious <laughs> structure in the world. But it is in ruins. You you can see columns and there are no ceilings and it's, it's ruins. You notice the ruins. Uh, the difference with, with the Temple of Dendera is that the, the Temple of Dendera is in perfect shape. So you go there and 
everything is as if it was built yesterday, including the colors on the ceiling. And that's probably like one of the most striking things about it is that you don't have to imagine things. You you go there and you see what is there, basically. Mm -hmm. and, and that's fascinating. It's beautiful. And, and another part of that is that the feeling, the... The, the holy feeling of the temple is still present in this temple because it's not in ruins. So, so the whole the whole mood of the temple is still sacred. Because if you go to, I don't know, you, you go to Parthenon or other temples that are, it's just the ruins and a couple of columns and you have to imagine what was there. The sense of, of sacredness is, is is gone, right? Like, and it's it's just you're looking at the carcasses or, and mm. the bones of an an ancient thing that is extinct now. Right. Uh, this temple in particular is a, is is still alive, and, and that's makes it amazing and beautiful. I, I am so. Before we get into more detail about it, mm -hmm. there, I'm going to ask how you got involved in. It. But I, I have been curious. And I don't, I'm not trying to pry too much, but I'm just curious in a general sense. Um, is your general paradigm of reality, are you a materialist or do you have some, what could generically be called spiritual inclination? <laughs> okay. So that's, that's funny. Interesting question. Uh, so I'm mostly anti-religious. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm incredibly rational and a hyper-rational person, but uh, I'm an idealist. So I think that the the only thing that we know with certainty that exists is our own awareness. Mm -hmm. and, and the funny thing about materialism, and that's why I'm not a materialist, is that materialism is a theory that denies the only thing that we have factual evidence that exists, that is our own awareness, consciousness. And, and and to me, when, when you have a theory that doesn't account for the only thing that you have certainty of, mm -hmm. then there is something really wrong with the theory, right? Because it doesn't and, and to me, I'm I'm an empiricist. Like I think what I what I what I experience is absolute because that's what defines my reality. So if the tale that I have to explain my existence doesn't account for my experiences, then I cannot use that. And that's the problem with materialism, that there, some materialists even claim that consciousness is an illusion, right? Like, it's like, are you right. kidding me? Is how you, you could not even pronounce those words without consciousness. <laughs> so right. it, it's, it's very interesting. So, so yeah, I'm hyper-rational, uh, but uh, I'm an engineer by trade and uh, I, I like to make sense of things. And... I don't have faith. I think I have, I have faith in the goodness of the world, and like this is an incredible miracle. Existence is a miracle, that and a mystery that we cannot explain, mm. right? And it's very mysterious. This place is like the idea you have these things that grow on your sides and have these little tentacles here, and we have beard in my case, or right. it's, it's so strange. And we take these things for granted, right? Like we, we go to a nine to five jobs and we do the thing and, and we get used to the miracle. But if you look at the world with the eyes of a children, then this place is spectacular. You look at Absolutely. a butterfly and it's like, what a miracle. It's like, there are no other words to express this mystery. So that's me, but 
at the same time, there are many charlatans in the world. So that's why I rely on experience. And, and right. to me, experience is supreme, basically. That's mm -hmm. a great answer, man. And the reason why, the only reason I asked was because reading the book, I, I understand your uh, background, uh, software engineering and um, uh, data science, all these things. Um, but there is a sense in the book of you can feel your reverence for, I don't know if reverence is the right term, but your, mm -hmm. your awe of it, you can feel it in your book. And so um, that's what made me curious about your background and it, or your uh, perception of reality. Mm -hmm. And yeah. Actually, to, to tell you the truth, this temple, I've been in many holy places around the world, like, like uh, cathedrals around Europe. And, uh, but a big part of why I wrote this book is because this place is the only place where I really felt in the presence of something bigger than just the place. Hmm. And and I think the book is a result of that feeling. And I'm glad that that, that went through the book, basically. I, I'm very glad that, that that happened because that's the intention. This, this is a tribute to the goddess of that temple, basically. That, that yeah, that, that's, that's awesome. And also, we'll go, obviously, we're going to come back to the book, but I have to say very quickly what you're saying about idealism. I always bring up with people, Rene Descartes, in the, I think, therefore I am. I'm, I'm sure you're probably familiar with this, but that's what that whole saying was. Descartes was asking himself, what is real and how can I know it's real? And he kept going backwards, ch chasing this train of thought trying mm -hmm. to find, you know, the first a priori assumption, the beginning, the thing that you could solidly base a paradigm of reality on. And that's where he came up with, I think, therefore I am, which what he meant was right. the fact that he is thinking means that he exists in some way. He can't really know what it is because he said, you know, you could be uh, chained to the, the walls of hell and this reality could be an illusion. We wouldn't know that, but what we do know is the fact that we have thought means that we exist in some way. And um, yeah, I mean, you're probably already familiar with that, but while you were talking about your thoughts and idealism, I always think of Descartes when I think of that kind of train of thought. Right, absolutely. He's, what he said, cognito ergo sumo is, ah, therefore I am. <laughs> yeah, and yeah, absolutely. And and he's, and and the the doubt, right? Like the methodical doubt. Is, that, is exactly. Methodology, right? Like I doubt everything. If I doubt it, everything and I, I don't make any presuppositions. What is the only thing that I know with certainty? And the only thing that I know with certainty is that I know, right? Like that's, that's it. Right. That's, and, and you cannot deny that. Right. So yeah, yeah. I, I'm that in that in that regard, I'm I, I follow the card, yeah. <laughs> cool. So all right. Um with the and with all right, so getting back to the book. Um mm -hmm. we were talking earlier about the the temple location. Um, and with, it, with that itself, just in a purely historical sense, is really interesting because you had like Napoleon found it when it was still buried in sand. But the uh, the I believe it was Napoleon, correct? Uh, yeah, his expedition. Correct. Yeah, they right, they right. found it like say, 1799, I think, is when, when they first arrived there. And, and when he found I thought this was interesting. The Like you've said already, it was almost completely intact except that some Bedouins had been sleeping in there and so had their their soot fires had covered everything. So everything was covered in soot, correct? Correct, correct. The ceiling, I don't know if you've been in Grand Central Station, New York City? I have once when I was probably like 15 years old. Right, so I don't know how old you are, but 
I remember when I first came, I live in New York City, by the way, and the, when, when I first arrived here, you, you walked inside Grand Central Station and the ceiling was totally black. It was dark. And it was because of hundreds of or hundreds of thousands or millions of people smoking oh, inside Grand Central Station. And it was like everybody smoke, right? So so probably like 25 years ago or so, they decided to clean up the ceiling and, and, and they remove all the soot that they had there. And now you can see the colors there. So something similar happened at Dendra, basically. That's so interesting. Yeah, and the and and also to clarify, you were talking about the temple um, earlier, which is the location is still there; it's intact. But the ceiling itself is is moved into the Louvre, right? Is that, so, is that no, no? So so the ceiling of the book uh, is so so the the structure of these temples, right? Like they're like onions. So at the center of the temple, at the very heart of the center, the, the, you have something called the Sanctum Sanctorum or the Holy of Holies. And I, I apologize. I, I'm under the weather. I like this horrible flu now. Oh, jeez. I will thank you for taking the time to talk if you're not feeling well, man. No, no, that's I, I, my pleasure. So so the Holy of Holies is right at the heart of the, of the temple. And then the, the way they built the temples was like that. The first thing that they built was the, the, the Holy of Holies. And then they start to build the temple around like in layers and in layers and in layers. So... Where this ceiling is, the ceiling that the, the book, the subject matter of the book, uh, by, by the way, the, the book is about the, the ceiling of what is called the Proneus. And it's like at the entrance of the of the building, there is this room, probably a gigantic room, the size of two tennis uh, courts mm. and with columns that are like seven story high. Like it's, it's gigantic, this room. And the ceiling are seven panels that cover this room. And that's the subject matter of the book. There is another ceiling in one of the chapels in the ceiling of the of the temple. So at the roof, what they did is they, they had these little chapels. In one of these chapels, they had a, another ceiling that was a circular zodiac. And that's the one that they took from the temple and they moved it to France in 1820, I think or so. And uh, they put a plaster copy in place where like, they left the hole basically on the ceiling of the chapels on top of the of the of the temple, mm. and and today you can see these these little they call it the circular zodiac, and the story there is like all, all the stories in, in in Egypt are fascinating. And this one is also like all all of them are like it's like like a, an action adventure kind of thing. Mm. So one of the things that happened, and sorry if we are going like all over the place, like so. Oh, one, yeah, go ahead, man. Love so it. one thing that I learned that is is that Egyptology is highly political and it is fascinating yeah. since its inception. So the guy who so when the Europeans, the French in particular, arrived there in at the at the turn of the of the nineteenth century, uh, we forgot how to read hieroglyphs. We didn't have that knowledge. So they show up there and they saw all these magnificent uh, edifications there, all these buildings, all these structures that bigger and more grandiose than anything that the Europeans could build at the time. Right? Like you look at the pyramids and it's like incredible. 
And all these, and, and most things except for the pyramids, are full covering inscriptions of all the temples. Like you go there, there is no one square inch that is not like written in, in hieroglyphs. And the funny thing is that they show up there and they couldn't understand anything. So, so is this ancient? So it gave to the allure of, of the mystery of what this civilization was. And there was all sorts of speculations of what it was and all. all. So then at some point during this campaign, they found the Rosetta Stone, which is the, the famous Rosetta Stone that is housed today in the British Museum because the British took it from the French because basically they had a war at the time with Napoleon and then they took all the bounty that they, they got and one of the, the things that they got was the Rosetta Stone that is basically, it's a stella, a big rock inscribed in three different languages. One of them is ancient Greek. And, and then on the top you have hieroglyphs. So, so what is interesting is it was the first thing where you could have, and, and they thought, oh, so the, the, this 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 rock may say the same thing on three different languages, and we know one of them. Then we can start trying to translate or meaning uh, what, what what the other uh, means, right? And that that was the the Rosetta Stone was the keystone to be able to translate and and being able to learn again how to read uh, hieroglyphs. And the guy who ended up doing this was Jean-Francois Champollion, a French guy who was a savant. He was like an incredibly, like a genius guy who like at the age of five spoke like ancient Greek and ancient, <laughs> like he was like a, a true genius. Like a he genius was a monster. Capital yeah. G, yeah. Yeah, he was a monster. And, and he, he was able to crack the, the hieroglyphs at the end. And he wanted to go to Egypt to verify that he, because all he could do was like people used to make drawings where they didn't even have photos at the time. So it was like depictions of things. And that's what he used to, and, and he got a copy of the Rosetta stone. Like basically someone put a piece of paper on top of it and with a piece of charcoal passing on. And, and then you had a copy of the, of the Rosetta stone record. And, and that's what he used to, to come to, to, to crack the code of how to translate uh, hieroglyphs. Uh, but he wanted to go to Egypt to verify that what he, his finding was correct. And so finally he was able to go there and Napoleon III, or one, one of, the, of the successors of Napoleon uh, at the time, uh, financed his expedition to Egypt with one, under one condition. And the one condition was that if he found anything that contradicted the Catholic Church, mm. he had to keep it for himself in secret. So <laughs> since the beginning, there was this fight and this table. political thing. Correct. And this ceiling, the 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 the, the, the this uh, circular ceiling in one of the of the chapels on top of this temple, the Temple of Dendra, the the circular zodiac. The, the interesting thing is when they arrived there, they couldn't understand anything, but they saw the ceiling and it was obviously an astronomical ceiling. And one of the things that it had was the constellations of the Zodiac. Mm -hmm. So so out of all these symbols, like foreign symbols, alien symbols that they found there, like all these weird gods with heads of animals and all this, the, the thing that they could relate to were the, 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 the signs of the Zodiac because mm -hmm. they're Babylonic, right? And this temple was created in... in 
in, in the late period of ancient Egypt, right? Uh, so so these, these symbols are uh, Babylonic and Greek because Egypt was, was conquered by Alexander the Great, right? And under 300 years, it was ruled by the Greeks and then later by the Romans. So, so when this temple was built, was at the late, at the end, of the of the at the sunset of the of the empire when the Romans took over, mm-hmm. and so there is a lot of influence already, like mixing of of Greek and Egyptian and all all these things start to come together, and that's why you have the symbols of the zodiac on the ceiling. So they were like, oh my God, this is the first thing that we can see, and because it's an astronomical astrolo- astrolo- astronomical scene, then what they what they thought is, oh. So we may use this to see at what time in the past the ceiling was in this configuration that they drew, drew here, and we can date the temple, and we can know when the temple is. And if it is more than 4,000 years old, then the Bible is wrong. So, so the dating in the Bible is wrong. And that's what the, 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 the Catholic Church was afraid that no. they could find something in there that would start to contradict the the scriptures. Mm-hmm. Now, <laughs> at the end, what happened is that they found that the, the dating of this, this temple is late, so it didn't contradict anything that the Bible said at the time, but but it was always with this caveat, and, and all is always knowledge is power. So, right. and this was threatening the, the, the paradigm at the time, right, which was already being threatened that it was the, the, the Catholic uh, paradigm. And yeah, it also shows the the subtleties of control because we think of control in terms of like um, big, hulking, powerful, intimidating forces. But a lot of it is just controlling slight perceptions of how we knowledge. Yeah, knowledge. just That's little it. bits of how we see reality, like steer us in a whole different. Oh, direction. absolutely! Because actually, the best way of enslavement is when people feel that they're free, right? Like so, so <laughs> right. if, you, if you can make people cheer for their leaders and, and, and believe that they're free, then I don't have to have guards. I don't have to have punishment, anything, because people are just going to control themselves. Right. Like, so right. That's the the best cage you can create is made out of thoughts. Basically. Absolutely. Yeah. Because yeah. if you can get, if you can get your people to work as though they're free and be productive at the levels of a free person, mm-hmm. um, you have the best of both worlds. But um, so there is an interesting observation in the book, and I'm hoping this just popped into my mind. It wasn't part of my notes, and I'm hoping that I'm getting it correctly. But I believe that you mentioned in there that most of these really detailed record keeping, these these hieroglyphic um, archives of what the Egyptian society, religion, spirituality was, that it came later in the in the dynasty um, because in the beginning they they assumed they were going to last forever and there wasn't as much of a need to document everything. Right. So, so the value, one of the biggest values of, of the late temples is that they, as you said, the, the priests probably, and the way I say it in the book is probably uh, intuiting that, that they're coming to an end. Right. Uh, They decided like to, in order to preserve all their knowledge. Okay. Let's put it on the walls of the temples. And let's make it immortal. So a lot of the writings on the on the on these temples are things that were never written before their time, right? Like the time of these temples, and that's one part. The other one, and and, and 
this is another fascinating thing is that because we can read the symbols of the hieroglyphs today, it doesn't mean necessarily that we understand what they mean, which is very different, right? Like one thing is you, you can read the words, but to understand their meaning is a completely different story, right? Especially, so two things. One is that the modality of thought in antiquity was we have a very different way to think today than, than in the past. Today, we try to be very precise and, and the scientific method and, and all this have taken us to the best way to express things is by having no ambiguity, right? And having precision and, and everything is like trying to be completely objective on, on what we do. Like in antiquity, they use a lot of parables to to be able to express things. So so everything is symbolic. And so it's a different mode and a different way of thinking because what you're doing is you're creating these symbols to express the knowledge, right? But they can be interpreted in different ways and then they become very rich, richer than a scientific book because a scientific book is not true, but you, you see all these fights of people and theories, does this mean this or that or... Right, like the, so. Still, there is ambiguity, but when 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 the symbols are openly ambiguous, then one of the richness of of these holy scriptures of the past, including the Bible, by the way, is that the way they're written is a way where it's symbolic. So so the way you interpret it is not a one to one representation of reality, but it's poetic. And, and, and you can express many things in poems that you cannot express in formulas and, and many allusions to other things. And so there's a lot of wisdom there. But when people try to read these things literally, then they, they, they're missing the mark. Mm -hmm. and, and it can happen. And it can happen in, in both ways, right? Like I can be a fundamentalist Christian that takes the Bible like word by word. This is exactly right. what happened, right? And, and I read it like that. And, and and that's it. Or or the other way that is someone like Dawkins, right? That mm. that is completely anti anti right. Bible, and and but he's taking it literally as well. So he's at the same basic level of thing where they're missing the they're erring the mark, right? Because they're they're not getting the real meaning of things because they're at the most fundamental level that you can be. That is at the literal level. Mm. Right? So there was a talking snake and a talking snake right. and woman that ate an apple and blah blah blah. blah. And, and yeah, you can you can believe on that literally <laughs> and or deny it literally, like that's absurd. Or or you can you can see, oh no, this this is a tale that conveys a very deep meaning and, and a very deep understanding that goes beyond the surface of that. And right. So the other thing is that the context of all these walls, coming back to the, to the temple, to these temples, is that a lot of the knowledge was implicit because it was known by the priests and, the, and the, that, that run these temples. And, and they use all these symbols to express their knowledge. But the context and, and the knowledge that they had in order to interpret this is lost. Mm. So, so when we go there... We can read the stories of the gods and Isis and Osiris and all this and the legends and all these things. And we can try to make sense of what they mean. But in reality, what they mean, who knows? <laughs> Nobody knows. It's, it's, it's speculation. Now, having said that, before I started this project and after I 
did this project, what I have gained is a huge respect for Egyptologists. And there is, so this temple in particular is uh, the way, the way, and these uh, temples are run today, and the, the, the exploration and the investigation of these temples is that the Egyptian government gives certain universities or, or different groups of, of, of uh, people access to these temples, and they, so there are experts there like, that study this temple. And this temple happens to be in the hands of uh, the French. And there is a woman called Sylvie Coville who spent 35 years in this temple. And she basically wrote down every single thing that is on the walls of this temple and the ceiling. And there's like hundreds of thousands of pages of text. And she translated that for 35 years. So one thing that is fascinating that I find today is that you have all these new groups of people that are coming and it's like, oh no, the world is 15,000 years old or like all these things. And they poo-poo on the Egyptologists who have spent years and, and decades. Like this woman, I would love to talk to her name is Sylvie Coville, by the way. She spent 35 years in this temple. Imagine what she knows about this temple. <laughs> it's like, so you cannot disregard that knowledge, right? Now, mm -hmm. the, the, the problem with Egyptology is that it's so technical and they, they write these things down in books and it, it's crazy. Like I, I can show you like here, uh, her books is, is so obscure because the way, the way you translate uh, uh, these symbols is that the first thing is you go to a wall and, and, and there usually is not that it's pristine and perfect, but their, their parts are erased and because of time and or 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 iconoclasm or whatever, but there are holes there. So so the first thing that you do is you transcribe what is on the wall on 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 paper. Mm. And and hieroglyphs can be written vertically or horizontally, right? And they can be read from left to right or from right to left. Mm. And the way this is a trick when, when you're reading hieroglyphs, the way you you know how to read them is that the faces of the of the hieroglyphs, that are usually animals or people in, in there, the way they're facing these, these faces, mm -hmm. uh, the, 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 the side they face to is the side you have to read from. Mm -hmm. So so when you look at, at hieroglyphs, the first thing that you look at is which way are the faces on the hieroglyphs looking at, and that tells you how to read them, basically. Hmm. And it's beautiful because since you can read them, write them like left to right, right to left, or up and down, then they're perfect to decorate places because you can put the text like around things, like cartoons, right? Like very beautifully and very harmoniously, and it's part of that. So why why was I talking about that? Uh, oh, so so oh because so so the first thing you do is. You, you you transcribe what is there and you put it sequentially from left to right. So you normalize all the all the writing instead of up and down and left to right and right to left. Everything is in this way, right? Like like English. Very. And then the, so that's the first thing. You you put the symbols like this. The next thing is you do the transliteration, which means you take those symbols and what you get is the sound that they made. And there is a convention where you can take and basically they have these symbols 
that express what the sound was at the time of those things. So that's the next one. And then out of that, so you create that, the transliteration, and out of that, you get the translation into, let's say she's French, into French. So, so the first complication of reading these things is that there, when, when I went, when I did this book, is that there is no translations of this into English anywhere. And these books are incredibly technical, and because they are trying to do science in a way, right? Like they're trying to be scientific. They don't tell you what things mean. They just tell you what they, f they report what they found, hmm. which is the other frustration that I have, for example, when you go to museums, you go to a museum and you see a piece there in the museum and they say, oh yeah, this piece was found this year and the name is X and, and that's it. Nobody in a museum tells you what the things mean. Right. And, it's crazy, right? Because you go to all these places where they have all these pieces and, and, and they're there, but nobody's telling you what they mean. Like the meaning is lost. Like, so you go there and you look at all these beautiful pieces and yes, but you know what they mean. And right. and to me, I'm very curious and I want to know what things mean. That's to me. So so the nice thing of me not being a scholar is that I don't give a crap about like my, my scholarship because I'm not a scholar. So, right. so I... And and what I was telling you before my book, I'm I'm very rational, and because this is a, a topic that is not my topic of or wasn't my topic of expertise at the time, and I don't read hieroglyphs, right? So I I don't I, I the the amount of speculation in the book is very very few, but but I think it, it makes make sense when when you read like, the book. I think it's coherent in, in the sense that, but but I, I try to tell you what things mean. Right. Because otherwise, it's like you don't get anything. Like right. knowing the names of things don't tell you anything. Yeah, and that's um, actually one of one of the things that I parts that I liked most about the book was like the sections on Thoth and all of these different uh, beings, where you give a background on exactly you know you have the image on one side and then there's a page on the side next to it that tells you all about these figures. Actually, it's image this side text that side but whatever <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and uh yeah you say all these uh fascinating things about these characters that like what you said about hathor uh, i i believe that's how you pronounce it hathor mm -hmm. that alone was really fascinating because i'm only I'm only vaguely um familiar with egyptology or egyptian mythology or whatever but so one thing uh, another thing i wanted to touch on or ask about mm -hmm. was in your project you wrote some software for this. Could you explain what exactly your software did? Well, yeah, sure. So, so what I did, and I think I, I I haven't explained what what we did here. And if you want, can I shut my screen for a second? I can show, like, yeah, because we're oh, that's that's perfect. So, so because we're on video, people don't have to imagine things. People can see things, right? Right. Uh, okay. Can you see my screen? Yes, sir. Okay, so what I did, right, is I went to the ceiling and basically this is the ceiling that is two tennis courts, right, and, and there is a columnate, like all these black squares are the columns on the, on, on the, on the, on that room, right, and, and this is gigantic, right, like this is like two tennis courts, one and two here, and so what I did is I went there and this is like, the compile the compile I took five thousand photos, and I I stitched them together like when I took a, a like basically a telescope like a 
a professional lens there and a professional camera. And I took $5,000 uh, photos. So I, I walk around and took pictures of little squares here, 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 uh, uh, along all the ceiling. And then I, I spent like three months taking all these photos and putting them together and building the, the reconstructing the whole ceiling in, in its entirety, which is what I did here, right? So, so that's why you can come here now and you can come and you can zoom in and walk around the ceiling anywhere in the ceiling, right? Right. So that's what I did. So the software that I did is I was with a tripod and a lens taking photos. So there are two complications here. One is that the, the lens is not always perfectly like perpendicular to the ceiling, right? Because I'm with I'm just in manual mode, moving the, the, the tripod around the, the, the room, taking photos of the ceiling. So when I stitch them together, they don't come out like one pristine, perfect thing, but they come out, oh, hold on, let me, oh, yeah. So they come out, basically the image doesn't come out like straight and pristine like this, but it comes out like, like this, it's distorted, right? Mm -hmm. So the first thing you have to do is you have to take this thing that is like this, like a sausage, right? Like a, like a, like a more like a serpent, Mm -hmm. And you have to make it straight, right? I mean, there is no software to that. There is none. So I had to write like, my, my background, I'm a computer nerd. So I wrote software to take these sausages and put them straight. Mm -hmm. The other thing, the, the second complication is that, so I took like, in order to take the photos of the, the whole ceiling, it took me three days working eight hours straight every day to take the 5,000 photos. But as the day goes by, the sun, the light moves. Oh, so, really? so, so the shading on the ceiling changes across the day, right? And because when you look at the, at the, at the room, the light comes from one side. So, so there is naturally one side is more illuminated on the room than the other. But when you're trying to reconstruct the whole thing, you want the whole thing to have the same light, right? So, right. so there are all these movements of light so so once you have this you want to basically compensate the light to make the whole ceiling just like one thing so mm -hmm. that was the other piece of software that i had to write in order to to build the the ceiling in one piece yeah it was no fun at all <laughs> <laughs> well hey maybe something it'll be like this. I think the the software for Napster didn't that that like uh, ended up having a bunch of uses that they didn't initially think. Maybe this will become some huge thing, man. <laughs> this, this program it is so specialized, yeah. Like <laughs> yeah. For, for temple, yeah, software to straighten up uh, ceilings <laughs> of temples in Egypt, and they're like three three ceilings, <laughs> right? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. One go, you could dream, though. You could dream, but um, that—that's honestly, that's like I—I'm in awe of what of what you accomplished with that. That's really, um, it's just really cool. I'm glad I got oh, to ask you. you a question about. Let, let me tell you, it's a labor of love. <laughs> yeah, because <laughs> this makes no money. <laughs> it's just for the love of it, and it's it's been wonderful. It's been a wonderful experience. But yeah, yeah this is such a niche project that. One of my eccentricities, let's put it this way. <laughs> right. Well, hey, you know, man, I mean, you've contributed. You've now, your field is in software. It's in computers. But now you can say, man, you've contributed uh, to archaeology, which is uh, pretty awesome. Man. Like, and that's a pretty enviable accomplishment that you've uh, contributed to two very different fields. Right. Well, you know what? The, the, the most rewarding thing is about this, this project is probably... 
when because you have this camera and you're taking these photos like where you're looking things up close and you see things that you know nobody else like in a long time has seen so, so it's a true discovery like a truly like indiana jones kind of thing where you know oh my god i'm seeing things that nobody has seen before wow. this is so freaking <laughs> cool it's like it's amazing that feeling <laughs> is totally pays for the whole project like yeah uh, like there, there are a couple of examples of things on the ceiling that i saw that i know like i'm, I'm certain just the person who cleaned the, the the ceiling saw it right like a decade ago but nobody else has seen that right that that is that's, that's a cool thought that's a uh -huh. yeah so in, in talking about the ceiling um there was one specific question i had um and so Actually, I guess before asking that question, what we should what we should clarify, because um, I, I, I get so interested in these topics, I forget that the viewers don't know what I know because they haven't read the book yet. That's the whole purpose of us talking. So the uh, the ceiling, it's it's basically a big astro uh, astronomy story. Correct? It, it's about time itself. Oh, right. Yeah. So yeah, we should talk about that. Yeah, that, yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. yeah, we're talking without giving context. Speaking of context, <laughs> yeah. So, so this ceiling is an astronomical ceiling, and most and and it's a late ceiling, as I mentioned, right? Like it's uh, at the at the sunset of, of the Egyptian uh, dynasties and, and civilization. So, what is interesting about that is that most of the astronomical knowledge of the Egyptians was encoded on that ceiling. So the ceiling is divided in seven parts. If you want, I can I can show you that. Like, yeah, I yeah please do. Probably better, right? So, where am I? Yeah. So, the entrance of the of the temple, can you see my cursor? Yes, sir. So, so yeah, this is the entrance. So you come in. And this is like the axis, the main axis, the main corridor of the temple. This is the ceiling, right? Like we're looking at the, uh, what is on top of the, of the temple. Uh, so we're we're looking here from from upwards, right? Like into 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 the ceiling. Uh, so it's comprised by seven panels, like a central one and three on one side and three on the other. Uh, one side represents the night and the other one represents the day. The east side is the day side and the the west side is the night side and is is fascinating when, when you go in egypt right like the west has a lot of connotations of death uh so so westing is a word like it is uh, saying westing something westing means dying basically is the dying place and that's why all the tombs and, and all the mortuary places were on the west because it's where the sun the the, the sun sets right like so so it's where, where the sun dies so, so the west side is usually the side of the of death, and then where the sun uh, rises, right on the east, that's the the day, and is the the side of birth, right? So, so in here you can see this is the east side here, and this is the west side, and so this is the daylight, the day side, and this is the night side, and then each of the panels has different uh, representations of astronomical astronomical ideas but one thing that that is very different and is this was one big aha moment that i had in when, when i was writing the book is that what the ceiling is about is time because 
basically what they did is they use all the signs in the sky to measure time. So, so the passing of the different constellations across the year, right? That tells you where in the year you are and for them to mark when the Nile River was hanging in the flooding was of crucial importance because out of that, that determined when they have to, to plant there and when they have to harvest and everything, everything it was around the flooding of the Nile that happened once a year. So, so what they were trying to do was to track the cycles of time so they could measure that, so they could organize society around those natural cycles. And that, so that's another big difference between the, their perception of time and our perception of time. Speaking of taking things for granted or not questioning things, is our perception of time is linear. Time goes from the past to the present to the future forever. And, and if you think about it, that's a very Judeo-Christian idea, right? Like, oh, yeah, I'm here once and I die. And then when I die, I go to hell or heaven forever. But that's very Judeo-Christian. If you go to India, for example, they have reincarnation. And time is not, like, you have more than one chance to recoup, right? And then you, you reincarnate in something else and so on. The Egyptians were similar in a way that their time was cyclical. So everything had a death and a resurrection, and it happened again and again and again. The day the sun died every day at sunset and was born the morning after, and, mm. and it was a cyclical thing every day, right? The moon, the phases of the moon came every month. Moon, month is the, the same word, right? And his month is basically the measuring of the, the cycles of them, the phases of the moon. And and that's this panel, by the way. So this panel here is the day, the 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 sun, the the voyage of the sun across the day. And mm. I can show you something of that. And this is basically the faces of the moon. Uh, and and then as as you start to go outwards from the center panel, what you're gonna see is that uh, they have like cycles of time are slower and slower and slower until you come to the end, right? And what you have is the goddess Nut, that is the the sky, right? Like it's like, like the, the night sky, where what you have is nothing moves there anymore. That represents eternity, hmm. right? It's the unmovable, is eternity. So the center panel, where basically all the traffic of the temple went through here, if you think about it, because this is the axis, the, the main entrance of the temple. So everyone walk, that wanted to walk into the temple walked through this, beneath uh, this, this axis here. This is the present. And this, what, what, when, when you look at it, right, it has all these solar disks with wings, right? They represent Horus, and they represent the Pharaoh. So, this is the nexus of the temple between basically the divine and the the, the terrestrial. And mm -hmm. it's the incarnation, the, the, the divine being incarnated, who was the Pharaoh, right? It's the nexus, and his life is in the present. He's the day-to-day, he's -day, what happens every day. That's the present. And as you walk on to, towards the sides, what you have is slower and slower cycles of time, until you reach eternity at the corners of the at the at the, at the edges of the of the ceiling, right? Mm. So so what you have here 
is a representation of the totality of time from the present to eternity. So this is a map of time, basically expressing terms from astronomical terms, which is the things that move and that create the cycles in the sky. And they use these as markers to count the, the cycles of, the, of nature and to synchronize their, their society and their, their societal activities to the cycles of time of nature. So they could create a harmonious society mm -hmm. around across around the, the, the cycles of time. And That's which is it. sublime. Like when you think about that, that idea is sublime, it's so beautiful. Yeah, the intellectual achievement of that is that's uh astounding. Um there was one part in there where you mentioned I think you they were the deacons. Like so there's different beings that represent the different um like hours. Every, every bit of time is represented by a figure. Um and there was a really interesting part where you said that Seth was removed because uh Seth is the he's the the curse the, the bad guy that they didn't want in in the in the uh, hieroglyphics. Um and this might have been in the book and I just didn't catch it. But um how did you know that Seth was supposed to be there? How, how do I know that he's not present? Because he's not. Like, how, like, no, and how, like, how do you know that he should be there? Since, since it's just... Oh, oh, okay, okay, okay. Because what happened is that, so, in Egyptian mythology, uh, they have, a, uh, like, a creation myth, just like, like, uh, in Christianity, we have, like, the, the idea of the paradise and all this, the creation in seven days and so on. They have a creation myth where, at the end, what you have is two gods that have five kids and those are like the first five gods and they are basically isis or osiris which is the oldest then you have seth isis uh, horus uh, and neftis those are the five so those five gods were like the, the original gods they're the, the founders of the club right, like, uh, <laughs> right. The, these five guys now osiris which is the oldest had a fight with his younger brother, Seth, because he was jealous of him, very similar to Abel and Cain, like when, when you think of oh, this right, thing, right? And, and then Seth decided to kill Osiris. And he's member of Osiris in 28 parts and threw them, uh, scattered them across uh, Egypt. And his sister and wife of Osiris, which is Isis, collected all the parts and rebuilt the body of, of of Osiris and use a magical spell to bring him back to life. And as he was back to life for momentarily, they conceived a child which became Horus. So, but the original pantheon are these five gods, right? Mm -hmm. But then when you look at the ceiling and you see like the sequence and, and the husband... So there were like two couples of brothers and sisters was Isis and Osiris, Osiris and Isis, and then Seth and Nephthys, and then Horus. Those are the, the five original uh, gods. Mm -hmm. uh, and then you see is you see you see Osiris, you see Isis, then where Seth should be is removed and another god is put there and then Nephthys was the wife so you know that's the logical place for the god to be because the old myths tell you about this and it's, it's everywhere but mm -hmm. what happened is and he was not a bad god like until late 
in, mm. in, in so at the beginning you can see he used to help his brother and and they, he used to be a good guy but he had a downfall at some point during the dynasties where he became the bad guy in the in the story right like the the judah and, mm -hmm. and and then he he became outcast of all the temples and so on but there is a lot of setian uh, cults and so on prior to that in egypt basically mm -hmm. which were people who worship set and but then he became the devil basically hmm. interesting mm -hmm. and so he doesn't appear anywhere on the ceiling at all uh, no it is but it's it's funny like you can see like i can show you set <laughs> so he's represented in many ways, but he's usually like, can you see the screen? Uh, can you see my screen? Oh, yes, sir. Yes, sir. Okay. So I think it's here. We can come here to the boats of the sun. Let's, let's turn this here. Yeah. So he's represented usually when, when he's shown. He's shown as a donkey. And he's shown being stabbed by a pro like here for example this is probably set here being stabbed by <laughs> by horrors right mm -hmm. and, and you can see so so he's shown as being punished basically mm -hmm. so that's the places like look oh the donkey here this is set ah uh, uh, really yes so so he's <laughs> been punished right like he's he's shown but as as a as a as an example of how not to mess with the current deities, right? Like, <laughs> Man, that's that's interesting. <laughs> um, and so he is in in every instance he is presented in a, a negative light on the ceiling. In this in this in this late context, yes. Right. In prior in prior uh, parts of of Egypt, which are more more ancient. Then he's shown in a good light, and he's the companion of of his brother, and they're fighting, and he's protecting him, and they're fighting together, and so on. Hmm. And but it's funny, right? Because that's the, the the funny thing about symbols is that we have this tendency to when we're talking about these things. So, so we gave it human attributes, and we're talking of set as if it was a person, right, or a donkey or an animal or this, and, and and he was a brother and had a sister, and we're talking about these very human terms, we're projecting, we're anthropomorphizing these, these entities into, and, and then the funny thing is that we forget that, that that's only an analogy, and then we give them like human life and a human so, oh, God is the beard guy who is in the sky, right? And he's protecting and watching people or whatever. We we give all these human attributes to these concepts and we forget, and we get lost in the story. And that's the beauty of and the power of, of these stories is that we get lost there and, and then we create all these novels around these, like the soap operas on, on this, but we forget what the real meaning of this is, right? Mm -hmm. And so this one striking thing about the ancient Egyptians is that they live in one of the harshest environments in the world. Like the desert is dead, is total dead. But yet, when when the flooding is right, then they had one of the most fertile lands in the world. And but there is this contrast between the the desert that is pure dead and decay. And, and and the the greenness and, and the fertility of, of the valley of, of the Nile, right? Like so so what you have is this contrast of 
life and death, right? Of of abundance and scarcity, and and this interplay. So so this the, this idea of the opponent that you have set and Osiris. Osiris is the god of agriculture. Is the guy who taught people how to how to plant, and 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 set is the desert at the dryness, mm-hmm. right? And so 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 there obviously they're opponents because there are these two oppo- like these two forces in opposition which they by the way they're real because Egyptians live at the mercy of these two forces in fighting all the time one with each other right mm. but then when you give it when you anthropomorphize it and you give it a body and then you it's easy to relate to people to that but people it gets lost in translation that what they were talking is about the harmony and the conflict of these forces, right? And not the soap opera of, oh, my sister and my brother, and we have <laughs> children and blah, 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 and we suffer and all this. No, it's, it's language, it's poetic language to talk about these fundamental forces. Mm. So so that's the the, the opposition between Seth and, 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 and Osiris is that, right? It's, it's forces that are in nature. And, and they're opposite. And, and that, that's fascinating, man, because it's the same uh, out of the desert is what rose the Abrahamic religions, which are very dualistic, very dualistic ideas. You know, there's Satan and then there's God. And when it, obviously that's Satan's presence in the Bible is inflated by people. But but anyway, point is that duality that came out of that region. I had never thought of it as being a reflection of the region itself. You know, oh. Like. With the flooding in the and then the dry periods, that's a really interesting thought, man. Oh, absolutely, yeah. These guys were, and and what is interesting is that they touch on universal things, right? Like because this this idea of scarcity and abundance is is universal, is right. everywhere. So so the myths and the tales of, of that that are encoded here are universal, are are the forces that affect humans, right? Is humanity. Right. And, and the same thing you can say of the Bible or Buddhism or whatever it's like you take is this very, not naive, it's not naive, it's very profound tales that, that tell, that, that talk about the human nature and the fundamental forces that drive us, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and one I could think because so much of our own self-understanding is subconscious, which doesn't work like our logical, rational mind, like that is a better way to or it seems like it's a better way to help people understand themselves speaking symbolically and um, abstractly oh. as opposed to logically and rationally, because that's how we feel reality. We feel it in an emotion. We are emotions. We're emotions. Right. And reason is a wonderful tool. But we forget that it's only a tool, right? And it's limiting, you know, it's linear, is when when everything is precise, then things are fluffy and imprecise, like feelings cannot be expressed in linear terms and in rational terms, right? Like like things are irrational, meaning irrational, more more than that, right? Like that cannot be explained with reason, then they cannot be captured with, with the language of science, right? And, but but we are made out of those things, so we cannot simply say, oh, they don't exist because we cannot talk about them in science. Right. 
Yeah, man. Absolutely. All right. So we're coming to the end of the hour, man. I could talk to you all day about this, but yeah. um, so is there anything else? Um, is there anything else you'd like to share that we haven't covered either about the book or about um, technical aspects of what other projects you have coming up? Basically anything, anything you'd like to mention. Anything I like to mention. Uh, good question. Right. Uh, yeah. Again, I, we could, as you can see, I'm very passionate about these things. Mm. So I could talk about them for hours and we could stay here all, all day long talking about this. Uh, yeah. Like I, what I would like to say probably is that this book is a labor of love and is my frustration of being there in, in, in the temple, not knowing what this means and, but knowing that you're at the presence of something huge and beautiful and, and sublime and not being able to relate to it because of ignorance. So, so this project is or was my attempt to bring that to understanding and to bring that to, to be, I think it deserves to be shared with the world so fantastic and so beautiful that it deserves to be known by people. And, and this is my attempt to, to bring that ceiling down from the height and put, in, put it in front of people's uh, eyes. And so they can, but not only see, but understand. And, and the, the, the point of the book is not like when you go to museums and they just tell you, oh, this is this. No, what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to, to show you the harmony that, that makes this thing coherent and, and cohesive and one idea, one grand idea that you can appreciate. So you can see how wise these people were like 2,000 years ago. Right. Well, you, you, I mean, in my humble opinion, you totally accomplished that. Like the book, I actually, I would like to show real quick for people. Um, the thing that is amazing, well, one of the things that's amazing about the book is the information is fascinating, but this is also, I mean, this is a coffee table book. This is a beautiful book that you, you put out as a conversation piece. And so, sorry, I got notes popping out, but um, like, here's one section for viewers. I should just show that off because this is beautiful as an artifact in in addition to the the context of the writing. But um, yeah, right, man, so the, whole, the whole design of the book is around what, what I want to shine on the book were the images. So the whole book is about the, the, the these gracious, gorgeous, divine images that are in the ceiling, and is is a tribute to that. So the whole design of the book and everything is like. A, it's like a kaleidoscope, it's like a zoom. So the book starts very conceptually at a very high level. Oh, this is Egypt, this is where it's situated, this is the temple in Egypt. And then let's go down to the temple and where, where in time is the temple. And then I start to zoom in, zoom in, zoom in, zoom in, zoom in, zoom in, until you are in front of each of the characters in the ceiling. And But you have now, hopefully, the context to appreciate and understand who they are and what role do they play along the ceiling, basically? And what's the role? Right. No, yeah. And, and yeah, that's what I hope that's briefly showing. I don't want to show too much. You got to try to balance. Like, I want people to get the book, but I don't want to show so much of the book that they don't have to buy it. But the, it's, you know, I had to read it somewhat fast because Inner Tradition sent it to me and I needed to get my notes down to talk to you. But this is a book I expect to be returning to often um, because it's a, it's like a great, like I have a Salvador Dali book that's kind of the same. Really big book with just beautiful images, but you can also, some also great reading in there. 
So, um, yeah, man, I don't know, dude, it's, it's beautiful. And, uh, I, the story of you doing this to me, that in itself is its own story. And I'm glad you took the time to talk about it because, um, it's just really interesting. Like this guy goes in and it's just, his imagination is so captured that you undertake this huge task, uh, to bring this all forward to us. I don't know, man, it's, it's a, it's amazing. And, uh, I hope it's hugely successful for you. Um, have you gotten any, uh, uh, have people contacted you uh, about the work or anything like that? Uh, so the book is coming out, like it's on sale the 16. Mm. So it's, you can pre-order it on Amazon, but it's not out yet. Right. So, so but it's like a week from now or something. It's going to be on. I, I just thought maybe there'd be like uh, like people saying like just the, the story that this book is coming out, that this this achievement is about to hit the stands. I thought maybe you'd have some specialists or something that were interested in, in contacting you. If you know anyone, let me know. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, man, for sure. Um, I really, I hope this is hugely successful for you. And I'll definitely be tracking the, the progress of it. You and, know what? Uh, it, to me? done it already is i yeah, i did what i had to do that's it <laughs> right. anything that comes afterwards is like it's just icing on the cake right like I, i'm done i don't have to do anything else with it yeah well that man that's awesome so jose uh, thank you so much man and actually i should ask is it jose or jose 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 yeah uh there's jose aldo a fighter out of the ufc uh, that's jose and i was i always was wait <laughs> I always thought it was always Jose. Now, <laughs> now I always second guess myself. <laughs> but uh, all right, man. Thank you so much for your time.